Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. So, we're going to start with with the beginning of the Obama era. We'll make our way through discussions of racial profiling in the Obama era before discussing racial profiling in the Trump era, and then sort of finishing out with what the current status and likely future of racial profiling is. So, as a candidate, Obama promised to sign federal legislation banning racial profiling if elected president. Now, remember, Obama had pushed a bill to deal with racial profiling by recording traffic stop data, a bill which had been enacted back when he was a member of the Illinois state legislature. And then as a U.S. senator, he had co-sponsored the End Racial Profiling Act. But after being elected president, he did not expend significant political capital trying to enact federal legislation on racial profiling. Now, part of the reason for this may be reflected in the fact that whenever Obama made even mild statements criticizing racial profiling or general police misconduct, much of the right flew into a rage. When Obama gave a speech after George Zimmerman was found not criminally liable in the death of Trayvon Martin, he acknowledged racial disparities in crime and that more black people died annually from being killed by other black people than from white people or cops. But because his speech also acknowledged uh, that racial profiling was a problem and acknowledged root causes for racial disparities in crime, conservatives fumed. Heather McDonald proposed that black people should simply, quote, bring their crime rate down to white and Asian levels, end quote, and see if racial profiling continued. Writing in Real Clear Politics, Kathy Young pointed out the absurdity of suggesting that the non-criminal black majority could somehow single-handedly force the minority of black people who commit crime to stop doing so. Similarly to the Alan Keyes quote, McDonald's suggestion smacked of the kind of collective racial guilt that conservatives frequently accuse the left of promoting. Any leftist writer who suggests that non-racist white people who don't like being who don't like being blamed for racist behavior by other whites should just stop complaining and eliminate societal racism, any leftist writer who would suggest this would get raked across the coals by people like Heather McDonald. But the hysterical right-wing reaction to Obama making comments about race, policing, and profiling that seem almost quaint by today's standards now suggests that any attempt to make the End Racial Profiling Act a top priority would have been pounced on by Republicans. In 2010, Russ Feingold lost re-election, depriving the act of its leading Senate sponsor. High-profile cases where racial profiling was alleged continue to take place by people ranging from police to private citizens to employees at department stores such as Barney's in New York, which was the subject of a probe by the state attorney general's office. In 2011, the U.S. DOJ concluded that Joe Arpaio, the Maricopa County Sheriff, was guilty of a multitude of civil rights abuses that included racial profiling. The conclusion was poor timing for Arizona which had recently passed a law allowing police broad authority to investigate people for possibly being in the country illegally. The law included a clause prohibiting racial profiling, 
But there were significant fears that racist cops would use the law as an excuse to treat Latinos with more suspicion than whites. Donald Trump, gearing up for his 2012 presidential run, suggested the law could be used for racial profiling and that this was a good thing. In an interview with Larry King, Trump argued, quote, Nobody wants to say it. You have a Mexican-American and then you have a blonde guy walking down the street. Well, Mexico doesn't have a lot of blondes, okay? And these are the people coming across the border, end quote. Fact-checking Trump can seem almost a pointless exercise. But it must be noted that while the majority of illegal immigrants coming in from Mexico are Latino, there are well-documented cases of thousands of immigrants all the way from Europe and Asia traveling to the Mexican border and using it as a point of illegal entry. When Obama condemned the law, Jonah Goldberg, not to be confused with Jeffrey Goldberg, argued that being racially profiled was, quote, just inconvenient, end quote, while victims of affirmative action could suffer, quote, a lifetime loss. This was Jonah Goldberg's way of explaining why he favored racial profiling but opposed affirmative action. A 2016 police shooting illustrated that getting racially profiled could be a lot more than, quote, just inconvenient. In Minnesota, a St. Anthony police officer named Geronimo Yanez stopped a black driver named Philando Castile, ostensibly for a cracked taillight. Castile had a record of many traffic violations, but no violent crimes, and was generally described by those who knew him as a very kind man. Yanez claimed to believe that Castile was one of the men involved in a robbery that had taken place at a nearby convenience store four days earlier. Yanez asked Castile for his license and insurance. Castile politely informed Yanez that he was carrying a gun in hopes that the cop would not panic if he saw it. Yanez told Castile not to reach for the gun, and Castile assured the officer that he wasn't reaching for it. At no point did Yanez tell Castile to show his hands, put his hands on the dashboard, or hold off on producing his license and insurance. This left Castile thinking that he was doing what the cop wanted by taking out his license and insurance. Yanez then fatally shot Castile. An investigation later concluded that Castile had no involvement in the robbery. Jeffrey Noble, a 28-year member and former deputy chief of the Irvine, California Police Department, deftly exposed Yanez's use of racial profiling, as well as generally sloppy police work, in an expert witness report for the Ramsey County DA prosecuting the case, writing that, quote, no reasonable police officer would have believed that Mr. Castile matched the description of one of the robbery suspects, end quote. Noble pointed out that the only possible, quote, means of identification, end quote, for Yanez to tie Castile to the robbery was the fact that he was a black man driving near the scene of the robbery several days after it occurred. Yanez tried to claim that Castile's, quote, wide-set nose, end quote, matched the description of one of the robbers, but Noble mentioned being unable to find this characteristic in any police reports of the robbery, and argued that this characteristic, quote, lacks uniqueness in making an identification, unquote. Jonah Goldberg is now a prominent never-Trump Republican and CNN contributor. As far as I'm aware, there's no word on whether he still thinks that racial profiling is, quote, just inconvenient, end quote. 
While President Obama did not give major attention to the End Racial Profiling Act that he'd co-sponsored in the Senate, he and his administration found ways to partially address the issue, administratively rather than legislatively. In 2014, the DOJ announced new restrictions on racial profiling. The Bush administration's restriction on federal police agencies, restrictions on federal police agencies were expanded to most, though not all, Department of Homeland Security divisions. It also addressed profiling. I should say the DOJ restrictions also addressed profiling based on religion, sexual orientation, gender, national origin, and gender identity. And it covered state and local police departments that were involved in federal task forces. Also significant was Obama's use of consent decrees. The infamous 1994 crime bill included a little-known provision allowing the DOJ to investigate police departments for a possible, quote, pattern or practice, end quote, of civil rights violations. Under Obama, the DOJ used this to put police departments accused of rampant misconduct, including racial profiling, under what were called consent decrees, meaning that they would be placed under significant federal oversight until their policing practices improved. This not only had the potential to reduce racial profiling in departments subjected to consent decrees, but it it also could incentivize other departments to better police themselves to avoid ending up under their own consent decrees. For example, when Ferguson, Missouri became the site of controversy over the police shooting of a black teenager named Michael Brown, the DOJ determined that the shooting was justified, but the DOJ also determined that racial profiling and other misconduct were rampant in the local police force, and the town ended up under a consent decree. In the 2016 election, With the rise of both Donald Trump and the Black Lives Matter movement, racial and religious profiling debates received significant attention. In the Democratic Party primary, both of the main contenders, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, had track records of co-sponsoring the End Racial Profiling Act. In 2015, Bernie condemned stop and frisk itself rather than just the racist application of it, and Clinton did the same in 2016. This was a key turning point. Up to this point, some congressional Democrats in New York districts, such as Jerry Nodler and Hakeem Jeffries, had vocally condemned stop and frisk, with Nodler appearing at a 2013 protest rally against it. But most national politicians not elected in New York, with the exception of John Conyers, had previously dodged the issue of whether or not stopping and frisking someone without probable cause was appropriate. Among third-party candidates, Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson and Green Party nominee Jill Stein both opposed racial profiling and considered stop and frisk an example of it. Thus, an opponent of racial profiling had several options on who to vote for. The Republican primary field was divided. Trump, no stranger to defending racial profiling, explicitly called for profiling directed at Arabs and Muslims, while not explicitly condemning or defending racial profiling of black people. Ted Cruz took a similar tack, arguing for special patrolling of Muslim neighborhoods. Other candidates took a different tack. Marco Rubio condemned racial profiling of black people and labeled it a serious problem, but felt that Congress could do little to address it. Before his presidential run, John Kasich 
had made comments condemning racial profiling of African Americans while hinting at support for racial profiling of Arab Americans. In the 2016 primary, however, he shifted to across-the-board opposition, condemning Cruz's proposal for targeting Muslim neighborhoods. Chris Christie also criticized Trump for his proposals to profile Muslims, but no Republican candidate condemned Stop and Frisk, and several, including Trump, Cruz, and Christie, openly favored it. The murder of Philando Castile, as well as a controversial police shooting in Louisiana, and the retaliatory murder of five Dallas police officers, ratcheted up the debate over race, profiling, and policing even further. Tim Scott, a black Republican senator from South Carolina, described being the repeated victim of racial profiling by police. This put conservatives in a bind. Scott was a rising star in the party and was frequently invoked to deflect charges of Republican racism. But Scott had just described Scott had just described repeatedly experiencing something that many Republicans either defended or insisted was very uncommon. Mike Pence tried to thread the needle by suggesting that he believed Scott while also denying that racism was a serious problem in policing. Mona Charan, a prominent never-Trump Republican, would later write that Scott's testimony helped convince her that racial profiling was a serious issue. Other Republicans turned on Scott before he found out that what plays well on talk radio doesn't play well in a California governor's race. Larry Elder accused Scott of lying and whining. Larry Elder also said that he had been pulled over 150 times by police and almost always been treated with respect. This, of course, prompted other Twitter users to question why Elder had been pulled over this many times. Meanwhile, the Fraternal Order of Police, smelling blood in the water, called on Trump to rescind George W. Bush's and presumably Barack Obama's directives against racial profiling in federal agencies. Of course, the 2016 election cycle brought a terrible tragedy for opponents of racial profiling and opponents of bigotry generally. Russ Feingold failed to regain his Senate seat. Oh, and Donald Trump also defeated Hillary Clinton. Trump's presidency interfered with efforts to eliminate racial profiling in a variety of ways. In terms of the bully pulpit, and I have looked, you know, if somebody has a statement that Trump made that conflicts with this, I'm happy to look at it, but... I have not found a single statement that Trump ever made condemning racial profiling at all of any kind. So this made Trump the first president since George Bush Sr. to never make any statements against racial profiling. Second, Trump and his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, began systematically dismantling the moderate but significant policing and criminal justice reforms of the Obama administration. The juiciest bone they threw to racial profilers was to scuttle the consent decree program, but they also gutted a program that involved voluntary cooperation between the DOJ and local police forces to reduce misconduct, and they ramped up the drug war and the asset forfeiture policies that the Obama administration had scaled back in his second term, All of these policies made it significantly harder to reduce racial profiling. Trump also pardoned Joe Arpaio, who had encouraged racial profiling in his sheriff's department, 
and who had been prosecuted and convicted under Obama, while, although the investigation, of course, had began under Bush. When Trump fired Sessions, he replaced him with William Barr, the attorney general whose office had defended racial profiling almost 30 years earlier. Furthermore, with policies like these and statements like one encouraging police to rough up handcuffed suspects, Trump promoted a general attitude that cops ought to do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted, and this almost certainly extended to racial profiling. Racial profiling continued to come up during the Trump years in other ways. In 2018, news outlets reported on a probe which found that in Biscayne Park, Florida, Chief Raimundo Ateciano had told his officers to pin unsolved crimes on black people. Four out of 12 officers in the police department were willing to admit to feeling pressured into filing charges against innocent black people. Atesano was sentenced to three years in prison later that year. In Massachusetts, Vermont, and Iowa, foes of racial profiling scored significant victories in the courtroom. Things were bleaker in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi. In 2020, Judge Carlton Reeves was the latest judge in a seven-year lawsuit to dismiss claims by Clarence Jameson that Richland, Mississippi police officer Nick McClendon subjected him to an illegal search due to racial profiling. I covered this in more detail on my Larry Elder episode, but basically Reeves agreed that Jameson's rights were violated, but argued that qualified immunity prevented him from ruling in Jameson's favor. To recap what I said about qualified immunity, Qualified immunity means an individual cop cannot be held legally responsible for violating a civilian's rights unless a law that applies to that jurisdiction where the incident took place or a court ruling that applies to this jurisdiction has specifically addressed this exact incident. This legal concept makes it extremely difficult for victims to win racial profiling lawsuits because there is no federal law against racial profiling and not all states and towns have laws banning it. In 2019, a study came out validating long-standing allegations that racial profiling was rampant rather than an occasional problem. According to the authors of a Stanford University study analyzing 95 million traffic stops, quote, we assessed racial disparities in policing in the United States by compiling and analyzing a data set detailing nearly 100 million traffic stops conducted across the country. We found that black drivers were less likely to be stopped after sunset when a, quote, veil of darkness masks one's race, suggesting bias in stop decisions. Furthermore, by examining the rate at which stop drivers were searched and the likelihood that searches turned up contraband, we found evidence that the bar for searching black and Hispanic drivers was lower than that for searching white drivers. Finally, we found that legalization of recreational marijuana reduced the number of searches of black, white, and Hispanic drivers, but that the bar for searching black and Hispanic drivers was still lower than for white drivers post-legalization. Our results indicate that police stops and search decisions suffer from persistent racial bias and point to the value of policy interventions to mitigate these disparities, end quote. It turns out the old Bureau of Justice Statistics study actually understated how bad the problem was. In June of 2020, a New Mexico hospital 
was investigated on allegations that Native American patients were being subjected to higher levels of COVID screening due to racial profiling, and that this was temporarily separating some moms from newborn babies. This was a reminder that while the issue has received comparatively little attention, there have long been allegations that Native Americans are also subjected to racial profiling quite frequently. Mike Bloomberg, former New York City mayor, learned in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary that supporting racial profiling could come with a high price. As mayor during much of the heyday of stop and frisk, Bloomberg had always maintained that he favored stop and frisk, but not racial profiling, and claimed that he did not tolerate officers stopping and frisking people on the basis of race. After leaving office, however, he made comments in 2015 proudly defending racial profiling. Quote, 95% of murders, murderers and murder victims, fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops, end quote, said Bloomberg. Quote, they are male minorities 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of people that are getting killed, end quote. He went on to specifically endorse throwing black people up against the wall during frisks. There were two key problems with the part of the statement that I quoted. One, Bloomberg was using racial disparities in crime to say police should simply assume that the perpetrator in any murder case was black or Latino without bothering to look at the evidence in that particular case. The murder of the son of one of his own supporters, my congresswoman Lucy McBath, illustrates the potential consequences of this approach. In 2012, McBath's son, Jordan, was murdered at a gas station after an argument about the rap music playing from his car. The murder took place in Jacksonville, a very large, diverse city, and it involved a gun. And the murderer was a middle-aged white man named Michael Dunn. Had local cops followed Bloomberg's advice, it could have delayed identifying and capturing the actual killer. Secondly, Bloomberg was saying that young black men shouldn't be allowed to have guns because they should be presumed to be criminals. The implication was that white men could be allowed certain special gun rights, though one wonders if Bloomberg would include Michael Dunn here. I first became aware of these comments in 2016, and it was the initial reason, later bolstered by his derogatory comments about trans women, that I made a decision not to vote for him if he was ever the Democratic Party presidential nominee. When it came up in conversation, I directed people to articles about Bloomberg's racist comments. But in what was an amazing turn of events in the era of social media, these comments somehow escaped significant public attention until his 2020 Democratic presidential run. They ended up going viral right as his candidacy was gaining traction. The timing couldn't have been worse for him, since he had just been added to primary debates in places like Nevada and South Carolina. The result was that candidates such as Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg each set aside their differences to take turns hitting Bloomberg like a billion-dollar speed bag. Beat Donald Trump. We're going to need the largest voter turnout in the history of the United States. Uh, Mr. Bloomberg had policies in New York City of stop and frisk, which went after African-American and Latino people in an outrageous way. That is not a way you're going to grow voter turnout. 
I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look. The mayor makes an interesting point. The mayor says that he has a great record, that he's done these wonderful things. Well, the fact of the the matter is he has not managed his city very, very well when he was there. He didn't get a whole lot done. He had to stop and frisk, throwing close to five million young black men up against a wall. While it is unlikely that racial profiling was involved in the murder of George Floyd, the actions of Derek Chauvin and the other cops on scene brought increased attention to police misconduct of all kinds, including racial profiling. On June 8, 2020, Representative Karen Bass of California introduced a sweeping police reform bill called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, and Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey introduced a companion bill in the Senate. Part of Title III of the bill essentially included the end Racial Profiling Act, This title would prohibit, quote, the practice of a law enforcement agent or agency relying to any degree on actual or perceived race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation in selecting which individual to subject to routine or spontaneous investigatory activities or in deciding upon the scope and substance of law enforcement activity following the initial investigatory procedure, except when there is trustworthy information relevant to the the locality and time frame that links a person with a particular characteristic described in this paragraph to an identified criminal incident or scheme, end quote. The necessity of including protections for LGBT people in the bill was showcased by a 2021 study finding that LGBT people were six times likelier than heterosexual cis, were six times likelier than heterosexual cisgender people to be stopped by police. The bill passed the House on June 25th. Virtually all Democrats voted for the bill. Virtually all Republicans voted against it. In the Republican-controlled Senate, however, the bill stalled. Republicans instead endorsed the Justice Act, written by Tim Scott. Scott argued that he was especially qualified to write the bill due to his experiences with racial profiling, and he and his admirers vocally shamed Democrats for not supporting Scott's bill instead of theirs. But among the many problems with Scott's bill, the most glaring was that it did nothing to prohibit racial profiling. Effectively, Scott was claiming that his legit experiences with racial profiling made him the best person to write the bill, even though his bill would leave other black people who got racially profiled with no legal recourse. It would be like claiming that being the victim of racially motivated violence made a senator especially qualified to write a crime bill, and then not including anything about hate crimes in the bill itself. Given his strident denunciation of racial profiling on the campaign trail, Joe Biden's victory in November 2020 was a step forward in the fight against racial profiling, but it obviously didn't resolve the issue completely. In March 2021, the House voted for for the bill again, the the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and again did so on almost a complete party-line vote. 
Once again, however, Senate Republicans blocked the bill. In April, Biden called on a joint session of Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, making him probably the first president to explicitly call for anti-racial profiling legislation to a joint session of Congress. Interestingly, the largest sticking point that centrist, rep- cent- sorry, centrist representatives have with the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act seems to be the portion that drastically scales back qualified immunity, not the racial profiling ban. Tom O'Halloran, a Democratic rep from Arizona's 1st District, worked as a Chicago homicide detective in the early 70s and voted for the bill, but expressed concerns about the qualified immunity provision. Interestingly, O'Halloran said that gutting qualified immunity was the main aspect of the bill that police chiefs he had spoken with were concerned about. O'Halloran's comments should be taken with a big grain of salt, but if they're indicative of any kind of broader trends, they may be a sign that more police chiefs are realizing the dangers of racial profiling, even if many of them are wrong about qualified immunity. While most chiefs seem reluctant to acknowledge the scope of the problem, some of them appear willing to get down to brass tacks. In 2021, an eight-member majority-minority panel selected former Atlanta police chief Erica Shields as Louisville's new police chief after the Louisville police force had been rocked by a series of scandals, including the senseless killing of Breonna Taylor. Shields has publicly stated that she believes recent data on traffic stops in Louisville provide evidence of widespread racial profiling. She also suggested that she wants to scale back the drug war and cut down on car searches, and she has started riding along with officers on patrol in an attempt to promote better policing practices, including trying to eliminate racial profiling. There's also been significant progress at the local level regarding facial recognition technology, a form of tech that has come under fire due to the fact that it mixes up the faces of different black individuals much more frequently than it mixes up white individuals, creating a risk of racial profiling when it is used by police to identify possible criminals. For this reason, cities such as Boston, Oakland, Minneapolis, San Francisco, and both Portland's have banned or heavily restricted police use of it. Portland, Maine's law related to facial recognition was approved by city voters in a referendum by about two to one, despite the city being primarily white. In 2021, the Maine legislature passed the strictest state law on facial recognition technology to date, which, coupled with a recent racial profiling ban, makes the state ahead of the curve on addressing racial profiling. A federal bill to crack down on facial recognition technology has recently been sponsored in Congress by Senators Jeff Merkley, Ed Markey, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Ron Wyden, and Representatives Pramila Jayapal, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. In 2022, the Biden DOJ took a major but mostly unreported action on racial profiling. It ended the China Initiative. The China Initiative was an arcane but quite significant DOJ program started under George W. Bush to catch spies stealing national security secrets from the U.S. and giving them to China. The program was ended due to significant concerns that it was leading to racial profiling of Asian Americans, a group that rarely comes up in discussions about racial profiling. At this point in time, the primary obstacle to banning racial profiling under federal law 
is Republicans. There are plenty of legitimate criticisms of the Democratic Party, but the vast majority of congressional Democrats, as well as our Democratic presidents, support this bill, and many of them, including Biden, are making it a major priority. Nearly all of the congressional opposition is coming from Republicans, and it is not feasible to ram the bill through with Democrats having such a slim majority. Probably the only way to ram it through would be to eliminate the filibuster, a proposal I still can't endorse. The reality is that, is that Democrats are going to lose control of Congress eventually, possibly by November. And while I predict that Biden will probably win re-election if he runs again, sooner or later, there's going to be a Republican president with a Republican Congress one of these days. The filibuster is one of the biggest reasons that Trump was able to get relatively little conservative legislation past his first two years in office. And when Republicans do take power again, they're likely to be much more destructive with the filibuster gone. Still, passage of a federal bill against racial profiling remains an essential piece of finally ending or greatly reducing the practice. As of now, one of the key obstacles to eliminating racial profiling, reducing it, or at least ensuring more victims get justice, is that the legal definition of racial profiling, and whether it's illegal at all, depend on what state and town you live in. It's hard to successfully sue a cop or department for racially profiling you if there's no explicit law against it in your jurisdiction, or if the law is so vague that nobody can figure out if what happened to you meets the legal definition. I want to address here the most reasonable, good-faith objection to a federal ban. It's been argued that while a ban is desirable, it's inherently unenforceable. While it may, be not, while it may not be possible to enforce it in every single case, there are mechanisms for enforcing a racial profiling ban with some degree of success. We know there's a track record of this because, for example, Judge Robert Francis was able to identify the use of racial profiling in over a dozen arrests, and Judge Carlton Reeves felt there was enough evidence of racial profiling in Clarence Jameson's case to rule in favor of him had it not been for qualified immunity. Also, some cops have become so used to getting a pass for racially profiling that they are dumb enough to admit to doing it, as the Philando Castile murder shows. But what are the best ways of enforcing a racial profiling ban? The Democrats' police reform bill lays out some. One of them is requiring officials to maintain very good data collection on things like traffic stops, searches, and quote-unquote hit rates, i.e. the percentage of stops and searches that turn up evidence of illegal activity, to identify a possible pattern of racial profiling within a department. Another mechanism included in the bill is creating quote-unquote feedback systems to identify officers or units taking part in or at risk of taking part in racial profiling. There are plenty of other good enforcement mechanisms. Body cameras do a lot of good and should be required for all police, federal, state, or local. Sorry, should be required for all police, federal, state, or local. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Biden issued an executive order trying to deal with this to some degree very recently. All cops should be required to include a detailed description of all stops and searches, including the race of the civilian involved, why the stop and search were initiated, and whether the evidence of illegal activity was found. And this should, of course, apply to any kind of stop, even if it doesn't lead to a search. Cops must also be required to provide their name and badge numbers in these cases so that civilians who were stopped and or searched but not arrested can file a complaint if they feel their rights were violated. 
Protectual stops and consent searches should be prohibited. And there are that there should be significantly tighter restrictions on what circumstances allow an officer to force someone to submit to a frisk or a car search. The next enforcement measure I'm about to suggest may be unfeasible or appear wonky, but I think we should consider seriously whether it's a viable option. I think police chiefs who are sincere about cracking down on racial profiling should give serious consideration to the idea of trying to identify socially liberal people from diverse backgrounds who are either currently cops or interested in becoming cops, and then asking them to essentially serve as moles to inform on other officers who may be engaged in racial profiling. There's actually some precedent for a program like this. Patrick V. Murphy worked as a beat cop in Brooklyn in the 1940s before rising through NYPD ranks and eventually serving as police chief in Rochester and Washington, D.C. In his capacity as police chief, three of his biggest focuses were rooting out racism, rooting out excessive force, and rooting out corruption in the departments that he ran. In the early 70s, he was hired as NYPD commissioner by Mayor John Lindsay, largely to deal with rampant corruption on the force. To catch officers who were quote-unquote on the take, Murphy recruited a number of honest cops to serve as moles. Notably, he went out of his way to publicize that there were moles in place, but didn't reveal which officers they were. Sometimes he would invite cops to his office and specifically not recruit them, but make their co-workers think that these cops had been recruited. The result was that nobody knew if their partner had been handpicked by the commissioner to report on them, which gave crooked cops an added incentive to rein in their behavior. A similar program for catching cops in the act of racial profiling, as well as other forms of misconduct, might possibly work. We can also significantly cut down on racial profiling if we reduce incentives on the front end. Civil asset forfeiture and the war on drugs should be ended post-haste. We should also significantly reduce restrictions on gun ownership. Many people on the left will object to this. Even Erica Shields has identified seizing illegal guns, even when there's no other evidence of a violent crime occurring, as a major priority for traffic stops. But in practice, much of the racial profiling in large cities is driven not only by the war on drugs, but also by the war on guns. Training for police in general has to be greatly improved. The United States spends much less time than most wealthy, industrialized, semi-democratic nations when it comes to training police, and we are reaping the reward. Police training needs to be extended across the board, and there needs to be a high emphasis on what racial profiling is and how to avoid it. For one thing, before graduating, all trainees should be required to earn a perfect score on a test that provides a series of scenarios and asks the officers to determine which ones of them are racial profiling. For another, instruction in American history, including slavery segregation and how this has led to racial disparities in areas like crime, should be part of the curriculum. Police cannot solve the root causes of crime, but understanding them may reduce the us-versus-them mentality that helps encourage misconduct. Undoubtedly, some racist trainees will BS their way through this training and racially profile on the job anyway. But if nothing else, this kind of training will make it impossible for any officer who does get sued, fired, or prosecuted for racial profiling to claim that they didn't know what they were doing. This is not an exhaustive list of solutions, but all of them would be major steps in the right direction. And of course, we must eliminate qualified immunity. 
The abolitionist Wendell Phillips, namesake of my beloved Great Pyrenees Wendell, once said, quote, liberty knows nothing but victories, end quote. That was an overstatement. There have been significant defeats in the fight against racial profiling, but we've also made significant progress compared to where we were on the issue 30 years ago. And we should also think of what we may have avoided in 2020. While Trump did not outright rescind Bush 43's or Obama's directives against racial profiling, instead focusing on covertly promoting racial profiling, I suspect he would have rescinded these directives if he had won re-election. Having won a second term, Trump would have known that he would either be unable to run again or would have to make himself a dictator. Thus, he would have had little incentive left to prevent him from officially greenlighting police, racially profiling black people. Maybe I'm totally wrong on that. Maybe I'm giving Trump too much credit by assuming that he even knew enough to understand what the directives were, but I don't want to find out. So let's make sure he never gets into office again.